Hi folks, quick announcement before we get going. I'm going to be hosting a mailbag episode later this fall, probably after we wrap up the Woodrow Wilson content. So if you have any questions about presidential history, podcasting, whatever, feel free to send them my way. You can get your questions to me on Twitter at APHpodcast, via email, abridgedpresidentialhistories at gmail.com, all one word, or you can really make my day and leave your question in a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I look forward to seeing your questions and answering them down the road. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Abridged Presental Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 28B, an interview on Woodrow Wilson's progressive legacy with John Cooper. I'm excited to welcome John Milton Cooper to the show today. John's 2009 biography of Woodrow Wilson was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and he is rightly recognized as one of the foremost experts on President Wilson. Uh, Today, I want to focus on the progressive legacy of President Wilson. What impact did he have? In what ways do we live in the world he made? And how did he get it done? Uh, John, thank you so much for your time. Glad to be here. The first question I have to ask is, what inspired your interest in Woodrow Wilson? Uh, Kenny, it's something that grew on me gradually. I, when I started graduate school, I worked on World War I in the progressive era. Uh, actually, when I started out, I thought I was going to work on the 1930s and the New Deal, but then I got into something in the progressive era, and I have stayed there ever since. And if you work in that era, and if your primary interest is in political history, as is mine, pretty soon you're going to get attracted to, I, I call, call them the twin flames that attract uh, us moths there, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson. And uh, I have worked on both of them. But uh, with Wilson, it was, to me, well, part of it is that, that uh, he simply accomplished more as president and was president during uh, more critical times than TR was. Uh, by the way, TR knew it and hated it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really, Much to his chagrin. <laughs> the rivalry and the jealousy there was something to see. And now, Wilson, you mentioned it, the progressive era. I- I'm curious how sincerely Wilson kind of wore that mantle because he came into politics out of the blue. He goes from Princeton president to New Jersey governor to United States president in just a few short years writing that ride of progressivism was it a sincere thing like how, how, if you boiled him down to his essence what was his progressive uh oh no he, it, it it was sincere now he the reason that people might question it and theodore roosevelt certainly did i mean when the question attacked yeah. um, when they ran against each other in, in uh in 1912 um uh that that was that was the biggest thing that that um T.R. was attacking him as a Johnny-come-lately, an insincere progressive, uh, uh, a deceiver. Uh, and uh, it was one of those things where Wilson didn't have any trouble answering those attacks at all because they weren't true. Uh, what, it, what had happened, what gave substance to it was that uh, his first political patrons, uh, people who spotted him as a, a, a possible, uh, well, possible president, were conservative Democrats. So he gave some speeches, this is while he was still president of Princeton, uh, where he criticized T.R., who was then president, and uh, you know, he tried to give value to his patrons. The problem was he couldn't, because he just didn't believe it. They subscribed to something that's very familiar today. I mean, if you scratch just about any Republican, and they'll talk about limited government, small government, government this. Well, that, that's, that really comes from those conservative Democrats. Um, and Wilson simply didn't believe it. I mean, it, back in his earliest days as, a, uh, as an academic, and by the way, he was a, a student of politics. Uh, he was a political scientist, although he didn't like that term. Uh, from the very early, he rejected limited government and state rights. At one point, he uh, wrote to a fellow academic, he said, ever since I've been old enough to have political opinions of my own. I have been a federalist, and he put an exclamation point like that. Now he meant exactly the opposite of what federalist usually means today. <laughs> yeah. What he meant was that he was a devotee of, of strong central government, and in fact, 
he said privately, you know, well, and publicly sometimes too, that the founder he admired the most was Alexander Hamilton. And he was quite critical for quite a while of Thomas Jefferson, who sort of realigned himself toward Jefferson uh, when he got serious about politics. So that for him to uh, come out as a progressive, and it really was uh, uh, coming out, coming out of the <laughs> Was was quite natural. I mean, that was that was the better fit for him. The the that conservative democratic uh, uh, state rights, limited government stuff. It, it just it, it just didn't fit with him. He he gave, he gave it a try. Uh, what he did do, he was you can say he was an opportunist. Well, what politician isn't? Uh, he his patrons kept pushing him, sponsoring him, and he didn't say, "Hey guys, by the way, I don't believe in that stuff anymore. Find another horse." No, no, he. He let them do that. And then what happened was once uh, he, through their sponsorship, he got the, gov- the nomination for the governorship of New Jersey. Bingo. You know, it was, uh, you know, <laughs> give the old an outdated reference, Clark Kent coming out of the telephone booth. There he was as, as yeah. a progressive. And it was off to the races all, all the way, all the way then. One of the interpretations that, um, uh, took hold for quite a while among historians. And part of it was that the great, the greatest of Wilson historians, Arthur Link, uh, peddled this for a good while. He later quietly abandoned it. But it's, it was the idea that, that Wilson was this, this, this uh, reluctant, uh, come lately, uh, come lately uh, progressive, and that he just gradually grew more progressive, went into more progressive stuff because that's where that's where the votes were. That's where, that's where it was going to be. Um, that goes back to um, 1916, when the editors of what was then a brand new journal, the New Republic, this very exciting journal, and it was really in some ways the 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 great avatar of of advanced progressivism. Had they'd supported TR in 1912, and they switched to Wilson in 1916. And they justified that by saying that they hadn't changed, that Wilson had changed, that he had come around to come around to his limited limited thing in 1912 and come around to theirs. Well, uh, that helped them, but <laughs> yeah, he he what he did when if if he was hesitant about some measures at one time that he did did go for later, it was because he didn't think the time was right. He was calculating, uh, calculating uh, whether 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 he could get it done, whether he had the votes and had the political wins behind him. One of his favorite words, by the way, was expediency, and I don't think I have never seen it in my time used positively. In other words, it's a pejorative. Oh, expediency. In other words, that that means you're being uh, crafty and calculating and and. Uh, not not giving full value. Well, no, no. For him, that was a good word. Expediency meant timely, uh, able, able, able to get it done. So that you know, that's that's the real real story of his political evolution. And you, you talk about timing. You mentioned progressive era. You mentioned that's where the votes were. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about just that era seems so far from where we are today. Where right now conservatives are on the ascendancy. Uh, can you elaborate on, is, is it true? Like, was the progressive cause really that popular back then? And, and why, like, why was there this progressive moment? Well, what happened was that this, this, this era is, um, is fascinating because the basic electoral alignment came together in 1896, William Jennings Bryan versus William McKinley. And McKinley and the Republicans won decisively. And what's more, they put together a very strong and long-lasting coalition, based entirely, by the way, on Northern votes. They, they, they had tried different ways to try to get votes in the South first, at first still trying to uh, have, have African-Americans vote, and then pretty soon they started going after white Southern. Anyway, uh, but they, they, they won electorally. They, they, they had a very good lock on the Electoral College, a lock on congressional majorities. But the irony is that Bryan and his Democrats, uh, who were the electoral losers, were the ideological winners because 
everything except one thing in the uh, Democratic platform of 1896 eventually found itself into federal law, in some cases into the Constitution, the income tax, popular election of senators, and some things, some other things that, that weren't there. So you know, that, that, that's the irony of it. What, what happened was that uh, pretty soon uh, into around 1900 or so, certain Republicans in the Midwest, for example, like Robert La Follette in Wisconsin, began adopting some of those without calling themselves Democrats or whatever, they stayed in the Republican Party, uh, began adopting some of these things. And these came, and Theodore Roosevelt himself uh, co-opted some of these or tried mm. to. So he was trying to- <laughs> He was a Johnny come lately. <laughs> and, but he had his own reasons too. It, it's a it's very different reasoning that led him there than Wilson. But uh, trying to move the Republicans there. Well, guess what? The Democrats were there already. And what happened was every time any before 1912, every time you got any uh, any significant legislation or in the case of the amendments, what it was, was you had a certain number of Republicans, but usually the minority of Republicans, say in Congress, joining with almost total majority of the Democrats. So the Democrats, as a friend of mine uh, wrote a book about the Democrats of this era, calling it the party of reform. That yeah, we pay a lot of attention to La Follette, George Norris, others of these Midwestern and Western Republican progressives who were important, but they weren't they weren't the backbone of this. It, it's it's within the Democrats. So that you know that the, the, the time the time had come. Look, the um, I think that the greatest measure of how how different it is now, a century plus later, is that in 1912, basically, uh, T.R. and Wilson were running against each other trying to prove that he, I, am the sincere friend, sincere friend of big, strong central government. And this other guy doesn't really, doesn't really believe it. I mean, it's that, you know, Bill Clinton said the era of big government is over. What they were saying is the era of big government has just begun and it needs to get bigger. Mm-hmm. I'd love to break down some of the progressive policies that Wilson got passed, what it took to get them passed, and their impact. His first term yeah. breaks down at the midterms. Uh, the, the big pieces of legislation that we remember are the big three from the first two years. The Clayton Antitrust Act, which the FTC is part of that, allied to it. Uh, the Underwood-Simmons Tariff, which also carried along with it the first federal income tax, and the federal reserve. Those are the big three. Now, what happened in 1914 is, guess what? The, the Democrats lost uh, lost seats, and their, their super majorities that they'd had were, in the House at least, were, were reduced. But instead of trimming sale, Wilson doubled down. And you get a second batch of progressive, progressive reforms in 1916. Uh, you get you get a child labor law. Supreme Court later struck that down. You get federal aid to farmers the first time. Uh, you get an eight-hour law for railroad workers. This was the first real federal labor legislation. Uh, you get the up, upping the income tax, and you get the inheritance tax, and you get Louis Brandeis nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Now, we remember that, rightly so, because Brandeis became the first Jewish justice. And he went on to become one of the greats, one of the, the titans of the Supreme Court. What I think doesn't get remembered is what a bold uh, step this was. I've often said for Wilson to nominate Brandeis to the Supreme Court in 1916 was as if, um, as if Carter or Clinton had nominated Ralph Nader to the Supreme Court. <laughs> okay. that was, that's how much of a red flag Brandeis was to conservatives. How did he do it? Well, he did it. He had a, a nice dress rehearsal for it in New Jersey. And what he did in both cases was, first of all, he set out a legislative program in advance. Now, this uh, was unusual. Parties, of course, had had programs forth and put things forth. But this was rarely, I mean, a little bit in the case of TR, but very rarely did this initiative come from the president. 
the president would come in. Usually it would be the leaders in Congress would, would, would put these programs together and the president would help out and so forth. But no, Wilson drew up the legislative program in advance, called his shots. So what he did, he, the, the tariff was first because that was the easiest for Democrats. So they thought it was, it took a little longer. Then the Federal Reserve, which was a real, it was a battle in some ways, but it was more than the fact that it was so big and so complicated. And then the Antitrust Act, which was almost kind of, was almost, oh yeah, the forgotten stepchild in 15. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> the three of them. Now, so he planned his program in advance. And what he did was, we make a, I think we make a fetish, fetish now uh, <laughs> of bipartisanship. He didn't practice bipartisanship. He worked through his party. Now, this is where his academic background comes in. He was a, I said he didn't like the term political scientist, but he was. And he has been studying how American government worked and didn't work. And he particularly didn't like, this is very early again, did not like the separation of powers. He thought this really weakened, weakened our, our government. Uh, and, and that compared with parliamentary systems. Uh, often accused of being an Anglophile because he, well, he did admire them, but he wanted us to be more like a parliamentary system, not because that was British, that's nice, but no, right. not because of that, but because he believed it was more effective, more effective and more accountable. So he worked through the party. I mean, he had been, as a political scientist, I'd say he was a, a theorist, an analyst of party government. Well, he got his chance to be the practitioner of party government. And that's, that's what he did. Now, this created problems for him at the end of his presidency in foreign affairs because of the democratic losses of majorities and the need, particularly with, with treaties, for two-thirds. Uh, and he, he tried, tried obviously unsuccessfully, uh, at that kind of bipartisanship. But no, he, he worked through his party. It was, really, it was really working through the Democratic Party. And he, he would meet... Now, what's interesting is that we have three great legislative presidents of the 20th century, FDR, LBJ, and Wilson. Unlike the other two, well, first of all, FDR had the most favorable circumstances possible. He had a national emergency, and a national emergency and an opposition party that just pretty much folded and said, anything you want there. LBJ, of course, had spent his entire adult life on Capitol Hill, who had, he had learned and mastered the ways of Congress. And Wilson, as you said, was two years, just two years of a governorship, two years removed not only from private life, but from academic life. <laughs> that's supposed to be, you know, that's ivory tower, that's uh, yeah. know, the worst, worst, worst preparation. <laughs> Actually, he, he turned it around. I mean, the reporters were amazed, starting when he was governor, that, that he was so effective and did so well. And they, they would ask him, they phrase it as politely as they could, but they say, well, hey, Doc, how is it that an academic like you does so well at the, po the real politics? Well, he had a stock answer for that, the one that came from the heart. He said, after academic politics, the real thing <laughs> is so easy and so above board. So, no, he, he had plenty of preparation, but look, I, in all the stuff I've studied, I have never found a career in American history, and I really would look around for other countries' history too, that recommends, commends the study of politics as preparation for the practice of politics, better than Wilson's. I mean, this is a man who took what the lessons, not so much the specific lessons he had learned or things out, out of it, some of those too, but it was an approach uh, and a, a view of politics that he had gotten from this, this long study of it. And it really, he, he had one subject, which is how does power work? Yeah. How does power work in our system? And the corollary was, how can we make it work better? And better meaning more accountably. In other words, keep, keep them accountable to the people who've elected them. And can, where can we pin the responsibility for what happens and what doesn't happen? And 
One thing that jumps out to me from what you just laid out is is diving into this. He's going to only work through his party. But how well does he even know his party? Like, how is he able to do that effectively when he hasn't been around D.C.? The op- As you said, LBJ, he'd been there forever. He knew how to do it. So how does Wilson show up and just immediately know, here's how I make the party work? Well, for- okay, he, he got some help. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, he was a loner. But, well, you, you, you can't be a complete loner. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he certainly wasn't. He knew where to get the advice and the help. Uh, and certainly in, in the, at the beginning of his administration, he had Brian at his elbow. Yeah. William yeah. Brian, you know, who had really dominated the Democratic Party as Secretary of State. And Brian was very helpful in corralling his followers, who were sort of somewhat of the more red hot Southern and Western, Western Democrats, kind of getting them in line. The other one, though, he appointed as Postmaster General. A congressman named Albert Burleson from uh, from Texas, who was a a good old hand that knew knew these knew these things, and used <coughs> used him used used both of them a lot. Then he brought along from New Jersey <coughs> his secretary. That's we would now call that position chief of staff. They didn't then because there wasn't really just wasn't much staff of any staff. But Joe Tumulty uh, from New Jersey and Joe Tumulty. Uh, it was a good, good Irish Paul. Now, um, not not of the conservative machine type, somewhat corrupt machine type. He was a, a, a you know upright, progressive sort. But he really, he was really good at playing the, the political game, sort of giving some of the schmoozing element that that didn't come naturally to Wilson. Wilson was not somebody who was constantly, uh, you know having drinks or playing golf and things like that with, <clears throat> with the different, the different uh, guys from Capitol Hill. Although he was awfully good at one-on-one persuasion. Hmm. They would come to see him, although you know, also he went down to the Capitol a lot. Yeah. Now, one, and one way he went down to the Capitol was, the, the, the public one was, he addressed joint sessions of Congress. He, this was a, a practice that, Washington and Adams had used, and Jefferson had discontinued, and he revived it. T.R. had wanted to revive it, but it thought, no, that was too much of a departure, and then better not do it. Well, Wilson did it. He spoke before joint sessions of Congress and twice before specials of the sessions of the Senate. He did that more than any other president before or since. One of the reasons that presidents haven't done it so much since then is they found a different way to reach a national audience, which is radio, now TV. So this was this was what Wilson was doing in that pre-electronic media age. The other thing he did, though, was he often went down to meet privately with senators and representatives. There was a room in the Capitol, the president's room, and he used the president's room a lot. And that was where he would meet with them in smaller groups. Uh, often he would... Uh, if they wanted to come to see him, uh, his door was always open. I mean, not, not that you could walk in any old time, but pretty much. Or they had they had to clear it through Tumulty, but Tumulty was made sure that that uh, that, they, that they had access to the president, uh, and often um, he would go to see them. He would he would ask them to come down. So he he worked with them a lot. Uh, so uh, I think he, in many ways, Kenny is a offers a different model for presidential leadership yeah, yeah. or the effective look our, our models of models of presidential effectiveness particularly liberal models and we still I, Reagan is somebody that I, I don't think political scientists and historians have entirely come to terms with and understand but anyway for for the liberals like look it's LBJ and FDR yeah and it's very much um Certainly, a president who's got his finger in every pie all the time, mm-hmm. uh, meddling off, meddling, micro, <laughs> yeah. bullying. Now we're bullying, of course. We think of that with LBJ, yeah. FDR, would be a terrible bully too. Yeah. You know, that that kind of that kind of lead, and what and you think, well, that's what you have to do to be an effective president. Well, maybe you don't. I think Woodrow Wilson offers a different model. He was not doing that. 
Particularly, he, I like to say he treated the members of his cabinet like responsible adults. He'd appointed them because he believed they knew their areas better than he did. He was willing to defer to them quite a bit, although he would set the policy directions and then go do, go do, your, go do your thing. And if you got problems or you want to clear it with me, come on back, keep me informed. But it was very much that kind of delegation. Uh, that, that uh, in most cases, there are some cases where it, it was not good, but uh, really, really worked pretty well. And again, with the congressional leaders, with, with different ones, given whichever big piece of legislation it was, <clears throat> he would uh, defer to uh, particularly the committee chairs, the, cha the chairman of the, the, the different committees that were involved, and then certain senior people. Uh, uh, one good example was the Federal Reserve. Uh, the one he worked with most there was a, a senator from Oklahoma named Robert Owen, Robert Latham Owen. He had he was a very progressive guy, and, and Wilson worked a lot with and, and through him. Uh, he also, the, the chairman of the House Banking Committee, Carter Glass of Virginia, whom he later appointed Secretary of the Treasury. You know, the, the, he, 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 would, he would work, work he Find out who knows this, who's good at this. Often, what he would have to do at some point was reconcile different different ideas and different points of view. But he, he did it in a very uh, a very polite way. It was not knocking heads together. And LBJ was a would knock heads together and, and twist arms out of, out of the socket there. And no, he, he didn't operate that way. And I I think Wilson deserves. Uh, some study there that uh, that uh, to be an effective president, you you don't have to be uh, you don't you don't have to be a bully. You don't have to be a micromanager. I'd love to drill more into some of the stuff he passed because it's easy to see a list, but it's it's also easy to then forget what impact that list has on our lives and and how we see it. So, I, I, like, let's start with the uh, Underwood Simmons Tariff Act, which included, you know, that income tax. What impact does this have? I, and especially a progressive income tax. We often talk about this is something that should reduce income inequality. Did it succeed in that? Um, you know, at that point in a limited way, what it did was it opened the door for this. And I'd say by the end of World War II, <coughs> with successive administrations and different things, uh, it did. In fact, uh, income inequality was not so bad until the 1980s. And really, that's, that's where Ronald Reagan and, and the Republicans uh, have their great impact. I mean, that certainly contributed. I, I, it's, not, it's not the whole, whole story, but that was an awful lot. But there was, there was progress. And what, what came out of this was eventually, this is you know, a couple of generations, Wilson starts the ball rolling there was there was that the economists talk about how particularly the heads of big companies would deliberately restrain how much they paid themselves. Mm. Paid themselves and in other words, this gap between yeah. your, your average worker in, in a corporation or some kind of company and the owner, the, the CEO, was you know, there was a gap there, of course, but it, right. it wasn't like a chasm, the way you, yeah. the way you, you know. It's so very on a trench today. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, well, look, the, the one, do we pick up the paper these days and not see something about Jerome Powell, the head of the Federal Reserve? I mean, the Fed uh, is, I think, arguably the most important uh, government agency in the economy. Yes, and some would say it's some would say it's the most important player in the whole economy. Uh, and certainly, the, the way the way the, the markets you know, read the tea leaves there and, and wait with bated breath on every announcement from the Fed. Now, one thing you have to remember: the Fed, the Federal Reserve System, as it was established in 1913-14, was not as centralized as it is now. The Fed, as we know it now is as much a product, almost as much a product, of reforms, changes that were made in the 1930s under the New Deal. But what the basic structure was, 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 was put in place 
uh, put in place under Wilson. So that, that's the Fed. Uh, income tax, well, we, we talked about that. Inheritance tax has kind of gotten more or less passe, but that, that was something very much there. Uh, labor legislation. The Adamson Eight-Hour Law of 1916 was the forerunner and precursor to uh, wages and hours legislation that comes in the, in the New Deal. Uh, and a, a general general friendliness toward unions, toward organized labor. You mentioned it's an eight-hour workday law for railroad workers. Why railroad workers? Like, why just them? Well, first of all, uh, there, was a, there was a strike threatened, a major railroad strike in 1916. And uh, there was precedent. Theodore Roosevelt had mediated a, a, a coal strike, a threatened coal strike. Uh, so the president's... Uh, intervening here and, 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 and doing this, there was precedent for it. Uh, and it would have been seriously, I mean, the, the railroads were the major major form of transportation uh, for, for goods, goods, they still are in many ways for goods, but for people as well. So that a, a railroad strike would have been a disaster for the economy. Uh, <clears throat> the idea of general wages and hours, hours legislation was there, but, Let's go back to that word expedient. Uh, neither Wilson nor, as, I, as far as I can tell, there were very few people, and, and um, I think even Robert La Follette didn't see that yet uh, as being being possible, being expedient. But you know, that's you know, it, it's it it's it's the step. It's the step toward that. Uh, child labor that was struck down by the Supreme Court in a five-four decision in 1918, but that's. That was a, a, a very important progressive cause, and they keep at it. And finally, it's the Wages and Hours Law of 1938, which just really is the general general prohibition on child labor. And why did the Supreme Court strike that down? I mean, who says, ah, let's allow child labor? Uh, you're really asking that after these recent Supreme Court? <laughs> okay, shame on me. <laughs> was... What what the Supreme Court of that time yeah. had done, start, well, starting really back in the 1870s, was they had adopted something that lawyers like to call substantive due process. That's a kind of nice, uh, wishy-washy term for they had taken the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and read uh, economic values and social values into it. That is depriving uh, anybody of liberty without due process of law meant that workers had to have their liberty to uh, contract their labor, that this couldn't be, uh, this couldn't be infringed by, not only by government, but by unions. So this was a, what they did, they did it in a very powerful, uh, a very powerful barrier to government intervention in the economy and in number of social affairs, that's that's coming down the pike. So that 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 I think today's Supreme Court is really trying to hark back to that, hark, hark back to that. In other words, what they're doing is they're taking uh, certain values and, and reading them into the Constitution. And that was and that was that was the that was the the the, the headwind, the constitutional headwind that the progressives were were working against. It helped that. Uh, Roosevelt had appointed Oliver Wendell Holmes to the court. Uh, Wilson appointed Brandeis. You've got some relenting in it, but then it swung back in the 1920s, and it all came to a head with under Franklin Roosevelt with the court packing, uh, court packing fight of 1937. So, but that—that's what I mean. The Supreme Court was all. It, it, Wilson admitted he was looking over his shoulder all the time that well, will this pass muster with the Supreme Court? And often. He held back, and other progressives held back too, because they they knew or they suspected that they were going to get slapped down. Was there anything that he didn't accomplish, perhaps because of that, that like things on the cutting room table that would either come later or people are still pursuing him today? Oh, he had a. It's interesting. He had a further agenda for his second term: uh, more labor legislation. Uh, more kinds of regulation in the economy. Uh, you can see the germ of the New Deal and some of that. But what happened was this got shoved aside by foreign affairs. 
I mean, he, he had, he had, uh, there's virtually no, no domestic pledge. Well, not no domestic, none of his domestic program. There's, a, there, there's, there's, really, there's really nothing there in the second term because it's all, it's the war and then it's the, the, the fight, the fight over the League of Nations. So that uh, it was just uh, that, 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 that was aborted. And he said, uh, <clears throat> he said to a, a friend of his from the Princeton faculty, shortly before his first inauguration, he said, it would be an irony of fate if my administration had to de deal chiefly with foreign problems. And he added, for all my preparation has been in domestic matters. And he knew what he was talking about. Uh, and he, what he had to do was he, he, had to, he had to learn foreign policy, foreign affairs on the job. Yeah. And that, that started even before, even before World War I broke out. Uh, he, had, he, he had to deal with Mexico, with this revolution yeah. in, in the, the day he walked into the White House. Yeah, the Mexican Revolution is a whole crazy can of worms. I think I'm going to get into elsewhere because it is nuts. Yeah, and and you know it was it was kind of Wilson was damned if you do and damned if you don't. Try this, try that. Eventually, I think he he came to he came to a uh, the right the right thing was look, it's the Mexicans' policy. He said if they it's I think he's one point he said it's their if they mess things up, it's their mess, and they've they got to straighten it out. So it's as much as he could. And well, that was easier said than done because there were some Mexicans who wanted to draw uh, <laughs> Pancho Villa. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're trying to provoke uh, provoke American intervention. And I might add, um, there was an awful lot of interventionist sentiment in this country too. Yeah, it, it, there was a. There's a lot of intervention happening during his administration. I'm I'm surprised how many other places he went that you don't see people talk a lot, like Nicaragua, Haiti, Dominican Republic. You know, what happened there? That's that's a, that's interesting and a, a kind of odd. Um, those policies of intervention had started under the Republicans before him, and what happened was he and his administration inherited this and. They didn't like it. Uh, in fact, and which Brian, are we talking about? Which that they inherited? Uh, Nicaragua, yeah. Haiti, Dominican Republic, Cuba. You know the, these these uh, and uh, so kind of well. We're they did it pretty much in the spirit of well. We're stuck with this. Let's see if we can't turn this around and, and make the make these things serve good ends. Wilson himself, except for Mexico, was not very much involved with these other things personally. I mean, obviously, it's on his watch and knew what was happening and, and approved approved it. But he, he, that was not the front burner. Uh, in the hemisphere, Mexico was the front burner. The, th the thing that he was was dealing with dealing with most often. And um, in 1916. The campaign cry, great campaign slogan of the Democrats was, he kept us out of war. Right. Yeah. Where? Right. <laughs> it was, I've, I've gone back and looked at, really, I've, I've looked at not only his campaign speeches, but the Democratic campaign literature and everything. They were talking about Mexico because the 1916 campaign took place in a, a lull or a kind of, I, I'd use the current term, remission in the submarine threat. Wilson, Wilson had pushed that in the spring of 1916 and got the Germans to back down so that the threat of war had receded. We, you know, we weren't teetering on the brink of war in Europe during the 1916 campaign. So you're going to talk about keeping out a war. The question is where? Well, it was Mexico. And he, that's something that he, he was very, he, about, about Europe, he said, he once said to, I think it was the Secretary of the Navy, he said, he said, I can't keep us out of war. Any damned little German lieutenant can plunge this country into war through a calculated outrage. I'm thinking of something like the Lusitania. Yeah. But for Mexico, that was something he was absolutely determined to do. And the Republicans made that a campaign issue that he was being weak and we should have should have gone in. Uh, so, uh, you know, that but he said he even was not in Mexico, wasn't it 1914? He occupies the port city of Veracruz. And was it 1916? He sends a punitive expedition. The Veracruz thing was a brief occupation. 
uh, and it was a big mistake. I mean, Wilson realized that that was that was his wake up call. Like he, Wilson, unlike Bryan and most Democrats, had actually been kind of sympathetic to what the Republicans had done in 1898 and 1899, not only the Spanish-American War, but then taking the Philippines and bigger role in the world. And I think he had a few itches to, to try some of that himself. And he did, and it blew up in his face. And he realized that this was just, this wasn't right. 1916, Pancho Villa attacked us. Yep. And he had to do something. You know, that, that was something that you couldn't leave unanswered. What he did do, though, was as much as possible and pretty successfully, was to keep it, keep the mission focused on getting Villa. We never did, but Villa, don't let this expand. In other words, stay away from mission creep. Yeah, avoid a wider war. Yeah, there were, there were, a, lot, there were a number of clashes there. It, that, that could have blown up into a full-scale war. And Wilson, his Secretary of War, Newton Baker were determined, and uh, they had the right guy there in John J. Pershing because Pershing was willing to follow the orders there and had to control some of the hotheads under his command. Yeah, Patton, maybe. <laughs> Patton, that's right. He was down there. <laughs> um, I, okay, I'd love to... This That was a really fun detour talking about that stuff. I'd love to jump back to just get a little more detail on some of the economic things. Um, sure. The Federal Reserve, you'd hit on a couple times, and, and it is so much in the news lately. I'm curious if we have a sense of how effective it's been. You know, you look through history in the United States, you see recessions, depressions on both sides of this. You see inflation on both sides of this. Do we feel like the Federal Reserve? Okay. Uh, yeah. The question is, which Fed when? Ah. <laughs> One of the problems in as I said, the original Fed was not as strong and centralized right. as, as, it is, as, it is, as it has become. Yeah. Um, in the 1920s, it was rather weak. In fact, the center of power shifted to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, mm -hmm. which was very much promoting and, and, and enabling the kind of excessive speculation and, and uh, run, up, run up of the stock market. So that, in that sense... <laughs> A part of the Fed was effective, but effective <laughs> that, that we don't like. Uh, the Fed has been weak and strong at various times, depending upon uh, who's been in there, who's been appointed. But no, I think the proof of the pudding in the power, the power, potential, and often actual power of the Federal Reserve can be summed up in two words, Paul Volcker. Volcker tamed. We, we had serious inflation, not quite runaway inflation, but some people were really worrying that we were going to go the way of, of Latin American countries in the kind of inflation in the 1970s. And Carter appointed Volcker. And Volcker, through, I mean, sometimes draconian interest rates, tamed inflation. Also, I think probably doomed Carter's presidency uh, by doing that. Oh, well, I'm not Medicine. sure. But, but, but no, the, the Fed can be extremely effective. Yeah. When it uses to be. Now, it's not omnipotent by any means. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's human still. It's got yeah. humans. But, but it, it's, it, 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 it does things. It's, we'll see. I mean, the, the great question now today is can it, can it tame inflation? No, it can't by itself, but it can take steps that will bring it in. And, you know, let's see. Let's see. And I, I don't, I don't think it's a gone conclusion that they can't, foregone conclusion that they can't. Now, and, and the last thing I'd love to jump back to and, and hit on a little deeper is uh, Brandeis, um, yes. who you, you talked about, like, what an influential guy this was. Can you elaborate a little bit on what his impact was on the court and how does this contribute to Wilson's legacy? Well, Brandeis, well, first of all, Brandeis, Brandeis was, in terms of domestic policy and especially economic policy, at the beginning was the most important advisor Wilson ever had. Uh, he was the one who really supplied him with the, the spearhead of his campaign for the new freedom and the ideas there, that the, what you needed was active government intervention in order to permit, stimulate competition, to, to fight, fight monopoly by, uh, by 
opening the markets, by making the markets fairer, leveling the playing field, as we say now. So Brandeis brought brought this brought this to the court. Uh, brought that, that's where he was coming from, and that's as, as much as as much as anti-Semitism. It was exactly that that, that infuriated <laughs> yeah. conservatives and big business. Um, on the court, Brandeis was probably for the 25, 23 years that he served on the court, probably the strongest and steadiest liberal influence. Not some things, not great, great on race relations. I mean, none, none, none of them in those days was great on race relations, uh, but certainly on civil liberties, on uh, the economy. Now he was most often in dissent because uh, it's a conservative court and then the Republicans come back in and they get big, basically uh, he, he and he was, I think he and maybe one other were the only Democratic appointees when Franklin Roosevelt became president. Now, some of, some of those Republican appointees had, had turned out to be pretty progressive too, but it was a conservative course. So Brandeis is, is uh, even, I think even more than Holmes, the, the, the great dissenter. But what he was doing was he was pointing the court toward the, the more liberal directions that it, that it would, would take after 1937. Uh, two more questions for you. And one is, ultimately, what is the legacy of Wilsonian progressivism? It is, it is progressivism. I mean, essentially, this, he, Brian starts, starts it. I mean, the Democratic Party, as we have known it, really begins to take shape with Brian in 1896. Uh, I like the biblical analogy. Brian is Moses. He leads the party through the wilderness and then he's not allowed to enter the promised land and Wilson gets to be conquering Joshua. <laughs> well, then a generation later, Franklin Roosevelt gets to be conquering Joshua again, even more so. These are, these are what are, are building, building the Democratic Party. That, that, that's, that's, that's what's made them the, the liberal progressive party in this country. And the Republicans have sometimes tried to play that role too, but they haven't succeeded. I mean, I, I think all you have to do is look at the Republican Party today, and uh, I strongly doubt that there's any leading Republican who would not call her or himself a conservative, and uh, and a, and a skeptic, at best a skeptic, supposedly about uh, what government can do to improve people's lives economically, socially. Uh, it, we, we have you know, the old saying, watch what you wish for, you'll, you may get it for years. I mean, when I was coming through college and, and grad school and the political scientists are all saying, we, we need to have two differentiated parties. We need to have a liberal party and a conservative party. And, you know, we, we need to you know, get, get rid of this overlap. People ask for this? <laughs> that, that's, oh, that, listen, that was the wisdom of political science. You could, you could read the journals, you could go to the meetings and they're all decrying this, you know, that we, you know, you've got these, cons these conservative Southern Democrats and you got these, they, they, they never seem to mind of being liberal Republicans because there were Nelson yeah. Rockefeller, Jacob Javits. Right, uh, right, right. Yeah. But, but um, no, but that's, but they, this is what they wanted. They said, this is what we need. And guess what? We've got it and uh, we don't like it. Or <laughs> Almost don't like it. <laughs> and, the, and the last question I have for you is: We've talked a lot about Wilson's style, and you've talked about how he should be studied more for how he got these things done. What would you say are the top lessons of leadership that we can learn from Wilson? Uh, study and think. He <laughs> did. Yeah. Uh, at some point, be willing to shut out the noise. But whenever, whenever he made a big decision, he would he would he was often accused of, of not listening and taking advice. I think I think that was a mistake. He would he, he would solicit and he would solicit. He would receive lots of advice and lots of opinion, and he would listen to it and very carefully take it and take it into council. But when he made big big decisions, I mean the biggest one of all, of course, was to go into World War One. Uh, he would sequester himself. He would he would be alone and think. I, I think 
I've, I've a number of things I've read uh, are some people who politicians have said that's what they don't have enough of, enough of time to reflect, the time to step back and, and, and think about that. Wilson did that. The other thing is, uh, I, I think there's no there's no substitute for eloquence. I mean, this is one this is one of our truly great eloquent presidents. He, Abraham Lincoln, Theodore Roosevelt to some extent, Franklin Roosevelt to some extent, LBJ sometimes, but uh, and a Barack Obama I think is the latest example. But you, there's it it always helps a lot to have an eloquent president, somebody who can frame arguments and, and frame issues in, in, uh, in compelling persuasive terms. If you'd like to hear more from John, please check out Woodrow Wilson, a biography and his numerous other works at your nearest library. Thank you for your time, John. Thank you, Kenny. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from you. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, now that you feel good about Wilson's progressive record, we'll look at the dark underbelly of his record on race with Eric Yellen, an associate professor of history at the University of Richmond and author of Racism in the Nation's Service, Government Workers and the Color Line in Woodrow Wilson's America. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. P.S. Don't forget to send your mailbag questions via email, Twitter, or five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Take care!